Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. The following episode of Aging Matters contains subject matter that may not be appropriate for all listeners. This program focuses on sexual health for older adults. As such, it takes place with medical professionals and is designed to be educational. However, listener discretion is advised. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Sexual health and intimacy are important at any age. In fact, research tells us that 65% of older adults between ages 65 and 80 are still interested in sex. While the majority of this population want to remain sexually active, the natural aging process may put a strain on one's ability to fulfill sexual desires. Today, my guests are two physicians from MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of Women's Primary Care, and Dr. Ryan Hankins, Assistant Professor of Urology. They will both talk about physical and sexuality changes that occur in women and men as they age and what factors can impact sexuality. They'll also talk about how older adults can increase their sex drive and maintain an enjoyable and healthy sex life. So welcome, Dr. Singer and Dr. Hankins, and thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Cheryl. Okay, well, Dr. Singer, let's start with you. We always like to have an overview of of whatever topic we're covering on the show. So explain to us, why is sexuality an important issue for adults as they age? In general, good sexual health is really part of overall good general health. There have been a number of different studies that have shown that long-term sexual problems can be associated with a number of things, including loss of well-being, relationship dissatisfaction, diminished health-related quality of life. So if one is not where they want to be from a sexual health perspective, it can affect other aspects of their life. And as you'll hear us talk about, I think probably a number of times as we go through this interview, there's no age limit for being a sexual being and for having sexual pleasure. So for all of those reasons, that's why sexuality is an important issue. Okay, well then let's, I did mention it in the introduction. So let's start with you, Dr. Singer. How does sex drive change as adults age? And and I'll also ask this of you, Dr. Hankins. Is there a difference uh, insofar as the sex drive change between men and women? So we'll start with you, Dr. Singer, and then Dr. Hankins, you can add a response to this question. When we talk about sex drive, we're generally talking about desire 
In other words, is somebody interested in engaging in sexual activity? Uh, and there does tend to be an age-related decrease in desire or drive, although that's not an absolute, and that doesn't affect everyone across the board at the same rate. There are a couple of different components of desire, if you will. Drive is really the biologic component that's based on hormones and the endocrine system. And as we get older, there can be a decrease in some hormone levels and that can affect drive. The other pieces of desire, which are kind of that cognitive piece, what are our beliefs and values and expectations when it comes to sex, and motivation, which is the willingness to engage in sexual activity, that's actually the piece that really drives the day. And if somebody's motivated, they find a way. If they're not motivated, kind of doesn't matter what the biology is telling you. Um, so some of those things really remain intact, but that drive piece, the biologic mechanism, can decrease as we get older. Does that vary then between men and women, or what, what would you tell us? And since you're focusing on women, how does that vary? And then we'll ask Dr. Hankins what his thoughts about men. Yeah, and keep in mind when we answer these questions, we're generalizing a little bit, right? There's always a risk in generalizing because each person is different. But if True. we look at the sexes um, and make some general comments, for women, there often is a decrease in desire after menopause. And maybe one of the ways it's best characterized is that women kind of have a decrease in or lose that innate sense of desire or drive. So they can respond to somebody else initiating sex. They can be interested, but they may not feel that internal drive to be the one to initiate uh, and to really make that push. Sometimes a partner can interpret that as, as they're not being interested. But for women, that kind of innate sense of desire changes. And I think that's a little bit different for men, but I'm going to let Dr. Hankins comment on that. Okay. Dr. Hankins? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So really from a male perspective, uh, sex drive is often associated with testosterone levels. Not only uh, their testosterone, but it can have an effect both their relationship status um, as well as other health concerns can lead to um, decrease in their sexual activity. We, see, we know in men that oftentimes in their 50s, they start to notice uh, some weakening erections, less firmness to their erections. And uh, once they start noticing this, it can um, uh, cause psychological effects that tend to decrease interest uh, in sex just uh, as their... Um, as their confidence decreases. But so many other things play a part, relationship status, uh, uh, exercise tolerance, uh, things of that nature. Well, and let's take it then to, I, I guess you hear about this all the time as people get older. Is there a normal in terms of the frequency of sex among older adults? And, and I understand what you're saying, Dr. Singer, in terms of, you know, it's hard to uh, to kind of address all women or all men, but 
on an average, is uh, there a normal frequency of sex among older adults? Let, let's start with you, Dr. Hankins, and, and talk about what factors might play a role. And, and to that point, let's also talk a little bit about abstinence or celibacy uh, if people decide they're not going to have sex. So talk about that, Dr. Hankins. There is no normal frequency uh, for men and women. Uh, a lot of people feel as if they need to have sex every few days or, or something may be wrong. The most important thing is having an open conversation with your partner, um, girlfriend or boyfriend, spouse, wife, husband, your, your partner in general. Um, but there is no uh, dedicated or cut point for normal uh, in patients. Uh, abstinence or celibacy does not affect someone's health unless it's um, absence or celibacy that's not, say, chosen. You know, it's most important is uh, having an open conversation with your partner and trying to come to agreements on what each person wants out of the relationship when it comes to frequency of intercourse. Um, now, there is, well, I'll, uh, I'll finish there and, and let Dr. Singer answer as well. Dr. Singer? Yeah, so Cheryl, I teach um, the human sexuality course to the medical students at Georgetown. And one of the things that we talk about is normal is what feels good physically and is emotionally satisfying, right? And certainly is consensual and without coercion, all of those other pieces that we could add on. Um, but exactly what Ryan has said there isn't a normal frequency. And if you look at studies that have been done, what people consider normal for them varies from sex once every couple of months to sex three or four times a week. So there's a wide range of normal. I think what we know is that many studies show that although there may be a gradual decline in desire and activity with age, the majority of men and women who are healthy and who have a partner remain interested in sex and engage in some form of sexual activity well into their later years. Um, emotional well-being and the quality of the relationship have more of an impact on sexuality than the process of aging itself. And also keep in mind that one can be sexually active without a partner, right? There are forms of masturbation, self-pleasure. So we don't want to just make assumptions that someone doesn't have sexual thoughts or desires if they don't happen to have a partner. It's important, you know, as clinicians that we kind of ask about this in a broader sense. Okay. And I would ask each of you, um, we're talking a lot about the physical aspects, but is there actually a link uh, or a supposed link between the frequency of sex and happiness? Uh, what would you say? I'll just throw that out to either one of you. Yep. Uh, studies have shown that there uh, are correlations uh, and links to happiness and sex um, on primarily through survey studies. Uh, men more than women do link uh, happiness with sexual activity. Uh, however, uh, there is a positive correlation between, um, between sex and happiness. Okay. Anything you want to add, Dr. Singer? No, I, I agree with that. There have been a number of studies done that suggest that sex remains an important aspect of life for the majority of adults, about 83% of men surveyed versus 63% of women. Um, for women, there is some thought that that emotional intimacy 
that connection is kind of what comes first. And then if that's present, leads to the interest in sex and sexual activity, not to necessarily imply that men don't want to be emotionally intimate. So that's not what I'm saying. Um, but for women, that connectedness is very important and is often that link to happiness as well. Okay. Well, I think probably our listeners would also like to hear about what the life expectancy of, of being sexually active is, and maybe there isn't any one number, but on average, what would you say, uh, Dr. Singer, since you were answering for women, and then Dr. Hankins will ask you for men what the sexually active life expectancy is for the two, the two genders? Okay, well, I'm going to give an overarching statement for both genders. Okay. <laughs> um, what constitutes sexual activity may change, but there's no age limit for sexual activity uh, and for orgasm or satisfaction. Now, with that said, there is some data to sort of show that as people get older, um, although they remain sexually active, and there was a study done uh, called the National Social Life Health and Aging Project, which looked at over 3,000 adults between the ages of about 57 and 85, found that about 73% of them overall were sexually active. The likelihood of being active declined more so in women. They were mainly looking at women who partnered with men. And because men's life expectancy is a little bit lower, women didn't have a partner. So they weren't active because they didn't have anyone with whom to be active. Um, but they remained active over time. The incidence or frequency of sexual problems does start to increase with increasing age, both in terms of desire issues for women, and we'll talk more about this later, difficulty with lubrication, and as Dr. Hankins mentioned earlier, for men, um, erectile dysfunction. Uh, but there's no age limit, and Brian, I don't know if you want to add to that. No, I agree completely. Okay. Well, then you're really segueing into the physical changes. And so, uh, Dr. Hankins, how might physical changes affect how older adults view their sexuality and relationship with a partner? We'll start with you and then Dr. Singer. Um, you can talk more about women, but uh, let's talk with about men first. With uh, So, Dr. Hankins, what would you tell us? Sure. So, from a male side of things, uh, men tend to notice decrease in their in the firmness of their erections or their ability to achieve and maintain erections that are satisfactory for both uh, masturbation and for intercourse. Now, that's just one part of the puzzle, though. From a male side of things, men tend to see more weight gain later in life, less exercise later in life. And uh, they actually, if you have obesity play into things, some men notice that they feel their penis tends to shrink. This isn't a uh, something that's happening, but uh, with increased weight gain and more prepubic fat, um, men become more self-conscious about their erections because of that. Um, uh, other health concerns tend to lead to uh, difficulty with their erections. So other physical problems uh, such as hypertension, diabetes, those tend to cause detriments to erectile function itself as well. Um, so there are other factors other than just 
the erections that they achieve that can play on um, man's sexual health. So. And I would imagine then that that may impact the relationship with a partner because of how they feel about themselves. Would Would you agree, Dr. Ab- Hankins? Absolutely, absolutely. And what I tell my patients in the office uh, from – uh, from a male side of things, our penis and our penile function is how we've identified as uh, men throughout our lives. And then um, so it's completely understandable that as they become more uh, challenging to achieve and maintain erections, they uh, tend to have uh, problems with uh, self-worth and, um, and their overall general well-being regarding their sexual health. Okay, and now, Dr. Singer, talk about the common changes in women and and what uh, occurring in women as they as they age and and how that might also affect their sexuality and relationship with a partner. Sure. So for women, you know, much of the many of the changes that we see are really related to menopause and the loss of estrogen following menopause which can not only affect desire and drive, as we were talking about before, but we tend to see decreased breast engorgement with excitation or arousal, um, thinning of the vaginal mucosa or the skin that's there, decreased elasticity. There can be some atrophy in the area so that there's less lubrication. Uh, Sex can become more painful sometimes and also a decrease in the tactile sensation or what they normally would have responded to uh, can can be less so. There's often a shorter duration of orgasm, um, a longer time to recycle. So when I talk to patients as they get older, we'll often talk about the fact that all of these stages, and some of them are artificially broken up, but when we talk about the sexual response cycle and particularly arousal and orgasm, and then that refractory period, they are all still possible, but it's kind of a function of time and the clock. Everything takes longer, and that's both for men and women. So it often takes longer to get aroused, and whereas fantasies and thinking about things might have done it for somebody earlier on, you often need more direct touch and stimulation. It takes longer to reach orgasm. Once you do, the orgasm may not last as long, and then in terms of being ready to go again and reach a second orgasm, it often takes much longer to get there a second time. And that change in speed is is part of the normal aging process. I would also think that women have a different view about themselves as they age in terms of their physical beauty. Their their skin isn't quite as taut as it used to be, and they don't look, they've got more wrinkles in, in their face and that. I would suspect that that too, in terms of how they feel about themselves and how they, they view themselves with their partner. Um, would you agree? I, I do agree. And I think we'll, when we talk about some of the medical conditions and surgeries that can play a role, you know, anything, whether it's natural aging, whether it is something else that happens because of an illness, anything that changes somebody's body image or self-esteem or the way they feel about themselves can absolutely affect the way they think a partner may feel about them um, and how attractive they think they are to a partner. So those things all play a role. And it's important, you know, as a clinician, whenever somebody is going through a change in stage of life, 
has a new medical problem undergoing a new procedure, that we think about how that could affect sexual health and sexuality and actually discuss it because uh, many people either aren't aware or are afraid to bring the topic up. And Dr. Singer, to that point, and, and I think Dr. Hankins mentioned a couple of, of uh, uh, conditions, uh, health conditions like diabetes. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit more on health conditions that could affect older adults' ability to have and enjoy sex? Yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> so this, it's a very, I, I, know we're, Good point. I know we're watching the clock, right? There are, there's a long list of health conditions that can affect older adults' ability um, to engage in and enjoy sex. I'm going to hit some of the high level categories, okay. um, but certainly cardiac and vascular diseases, anything that can affect vessels, the blood supply to the genital organs or the nerves that innervate the genital organs can cause a problem. So high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, um, history of heart attack, not only because of the underlying vascular disease, but often patients, and this may speak a little bit more to men, but you know, if they've had a heart attack, worry that if they engage in sexual activity or reach orgasm, it could cause another one. Um, for most, in quotes, normal sex, that's not really an issue, uh, but we, you know, people have that fear and then it becomes an issue. Endocrine disorders, and the one that Dr. Hankins mentioned, which is top of the list, is diabetes. Again, it affects nerves and vessel function. Um, neurologic disorders, multiple sclerosis, somebody with spinal cord damage, Parkinson's disease, um, dermatologic conditions, which speaks to self-esteem, right? And, and the way we feel about ourselves, gynecologic and penile disorders, I think we're going to talk more about mood and anxiety, but I just want to give an interesting example. Um, I had a couple who came to see me, and he had Parkinson's disease, um, and it wasn't that he had issues with erectile function, but one of the things that was going on, think about when you might be engaged in sexual activity with a partner. How do you know if they are enjoying things, having pain, uncomfortable, right? We look at each other. We sometimes read facial expressions. Um, we talk. We have a sense as to what's going on. One of the things that happens in Parkinson's disease or can happen is not only slower movement, but also what we call masked faces, where people don't have as much expression on their face and they don't emote the same way. And one of the things that in this case, the wife was explaining or describing is because she wasn't able to read his expressions the way she used to, she couldn't tell whether when there was pleasure, when there was enjoyment, um, if what she was doing was something that he liked. I use that as an example because if you asked a medical student or somebody else about what's the problem with Parkinson's, they would talk about the nerve problems, the neurologic manifestations, nobody would think about that change in communication. So sometimes we have to think about the way medical problems uh, in other aspects can affect sexual health. Yes, that well said. And, and you've been alluding a little bit to the mental health issues. And I just wanted to, we're going to take a sh break shortly, but I just wanted to ask Dr. Hankins, in terms of your practice, do you find 
when you see patients that there are these mental health issues like depression or anxiety or something that's related to some of these health conditions that Dr. Singer talked about that also might prevent, in this case, men from having a satisfactory sex life. What do you see, Dr. Yeah, absolutely. Hedges? So uh, especially um, commonly we see anxiety. Anxiety itself can lead to problems with erections. Uh, a sexual health colleague of mine once told me or the way that the metaphor they used was that uh, anxiety really gets the sympathetic nervous system um, going. And the sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight nervous system. And we are not designed as men to run away from a tiger in the jungle with an erection. And the moment you activate that anxiety and adrenaline, the sympathetic nervous system, you will lose your erection. So if you're worried about how your erection is, that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's going to work. It's going to make your erections worse. So the more you worry about it, the more the worse your erections are going to get. Um, and depression itself, depression can lead to less interest in sex, uh, which further leads to less satisfactory uh, sex. Uh, and overall, uh, tends, you tend to have uh, less happiness and less satisfaction. Um, unfortunately, the medications that help with depression also can have sexual side effects, such as difficulty, uh, uh, difficulty achieving orgasm. And, uh, and so there are, it's a, it's a very fine line that we uh, work with patients that have problems with depression uh, and anxiety in improving their sexual health and, and, uh, and sexual lives as they see, as they see fit to try to get them the most satisfaction possible. Okay, well, we're going to talk a little bit more about medications that can cause sexual problems after the break. But in case you tuned in late, we are talking with two physicians from MedStar Georgetown University Hospital about sexuality and aging. My guests are Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of Women's Primary Care, and Dr. Ryan Hankins, Assistant Professor of Urology. And you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. So we'll be right back. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. Our topic today is about sexuality and aging. We're talking with Dr. Andrea Singer, Director of Women's Primary Care, and Dr. Ryan Hankins, Assistant Professor of Urology. Both of them are at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. The first part of the program, we talked a lot about various factors that can affect sexuality. And we had a couple more questions. Dr. Hankins, I was, and this would really be applicable to both of you as people because you see it, of course, in older adults in terms of dementia. And I don't know how much you want to get into dementia. I don't know whether it's more of a health condition, a physical health condition or a mental health condition. And of course, there are all different stages of dementia. Um, so 
Do you want to talk about that or shall I just go into medications that can cause sexual problems, sort of following up on what you were talking about, Dr. Hankins? We can talk about it. Primarily, they are the very similar concerns. It's primarily um, how the interest in the patient, like the how interested the patient is, uh, trying medications. I mean, uh, dementia doesn't preclude anyone from from go, having sex or masturbating at all. So there's not much to say about it, honestly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and I appreciate only, that. Yeah. yeah, Cheryl, the only thing I would add about that, and, and it's not related just to that, but, you know, when when somebody is ill and with progressive dementia, for example, when one person becomes the caregiver, Mm-hmm. Um, and other the other the care recipient sometimes it really changes the dynamic of a sexual relationship in terms of um, I, it, it just changes that dynamic and I'm happy to mention that if you want that may be part of it especially as somebody you know is starting to to worsen um, but it's not always so sexy to sort of be in that caregiver or the, or the patient side role. Dr. Singer. Um, Dr. Hankins had talked about some medications that might cause sexual problems, uh, especially in the treatment of depression. Uh, anything else that you'd want to add to that, Dr. Singer, about medications? Yeah, there, there are a number of different medication classes. And as Dr. Hankins mentioned, I think antidepressants and mood stabilizers and anti-anxiety agents are probably at the top of the list because they can affect desire, arousal, and orgasm. Um, but Antihypertensive, so blood pressure medicines, not just classic beta blockers, but other classes as well. Other cardiovascular medicines like cholesterol-lowering medicines and digoxin. There are certain hormone therapies that we give, so aromatase inhibitors that are used in the setting of breast cancer, antiandrogens that are used in the setting of prostate cancer and sometimes in breast cancer as well, tamoxifen, those can all affect uh, sexual health, amphetamines. There are some over-the-counter medicines, what we call anticholinergics and antihistamines that we may use to sort of dry mucous membranes. But you can imagine that it's okay when it dries your nose, may not be so okay when it dries the vagina, right, or other places. Um, I think the most important thing is if somebody has a problem that develops in a temporal relationship to when a new medicine was started, one should always think about the medication. It may not be, but when there seems to be that link, it at least should be part of um, consideration in terms of what the cause might be. And I would, I would think too that it would be a good idea when a new uh, medication is, is prescribed that the physician talks about those aspects of the side effects as well. I think sometimes it, it, it may not be, and I'd ask you, both of you for that matter, as physicians, if you share that kind of information uh, with your patients. Well, of course, this is a lot of what I do. So okay. I, I, think I, share, <laughs> I think I share that information. And I think people readily share it with some of the antidepressants uh, and other mood stabilizing drugs. I don't know if people necessarily bring it up with some of the other medications. You know, there's always this balance between wanting sort of full disclosure and people to understand what can happen, but not making people so concerned that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, I want to move into the area of 
the actual sexual behavior. And, and we're going to start with you, Dr. Singer, about emotions, about sexual behavior. And, and how does this affect um, an older adult's sex life? What, what are the likely concerns that you see in your patients? And, and since you, you teach this to uh, medical students, talk about both women and men in terms of these kinds of emotions that uh, older adults deal with. That, that's a great question, and I think we'll get to some of the specifics as we move on. But if we think about broader terms, you know, there are a number of patients who have concerns about functioning as they get older, and I think Ryan alluded to some of this earlier, but this whole concept of performance anxiety, right? Am I going to be able um, to get an erection for a man? Am I going to be able to reach orgasm for a woman? Um, am I going to be able to please my partner? Is there going to be any pain involved? When somebody is worried about how they will perform, it often becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of uh, creating problems. Because if you think about it, right, as was discussed, anxiety is not exactly compatible with orgasm or being able to focus on and sort of stay in the moment. With many health conditions, there's a mind-body connection. And so I think we need to be present in emotion as well as kind of be present there in body in terms of being able to have a satisfying sexual experience. And do you recommend that uh, older adults talk to a therapist or talk to you as your their primary care physician? Uh, what, what, what do you um, suggest if somebody, your patient... Uh, expresses concern about some of these emotions that you just described. Yeah, I would love to have uh, patients feel comfortable to talk to their providers in general. And a good place to start is with a primary care provider or the person that you have a connection with and sees you regularly. Unfortunately, we know that both on the patient side as well as on the provider side, there are lots of barriers to open communication. Both sides worry that they're going to offend the other. It can be embarrassing for both sides. Um, each assumes that if it's important enough, the other one will ask or bring it up. So part of what we teach in medical school now is you need as a clinician to proactively ask because this is something that's very important and patients may not feel comfortable bringing it up. But I'd like to empower you know, the public uh, to say this is important enough to me, I should ask. Um, but yes, I think that starting with uh, your clinician is a good place. There certainly are specialists or people who are more specialized available, both sexuality counselors as well as sexuality therapists or sex therapists. And a resource I'll mention now is called ASECT. That's the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, AASECT. Uh, that has a list of certified providers. Not everybody who does this is on that list, but that's a great starting place to find somebody in your area uh, if your provider doesn't know about referrals. There are also simple things. There are some really good books uh, out there from some very well-known um, sex therapists and uh, authors. And we call that bibliotherapy, where just reading something and understanding that you're not alone can help to normalize it. And for many people with kind of simpler problems, that's a great place to start as well. I also wanted to ask you, Dr. Singer, 
there seems to be sometimes such a emphasis on sexual intercourse. Talk to talk to our listeners about alternative ways of being sexual and enjoy being together that can be just as effective in terms of satisfaction. What do you tell your patients? Yeah, without making this X-rated, and, and I'm joking, um, or without having my parents listen into this conversation, I, I, you know, I think you're right. There's such a focus on intercourse and penetrative sex. That's a piece of things, but people can be sexually active and be very satisfied without having intercourse. We kind of talk about the sexual repertoire and expanding that repertoire. So it could include um, mutual masturbation. It could include the use of sex toys, vibrators, dildos, other things that can help with stimulation. For some people, it can include oral sex um, or even anal sex. Uh, But the idea is the more different practices that both partners are comfortable with, the more ways to achieve satisfaction. It could just be sensual touch, could be touching breasts or other parts of the body. The greater the likelihood that one can remain satisfied and intimate if a specific activity, because of health reasons, because of pain, whatever it might be, is now off the table, that doesn't destroy the entire sexual relationship. Um, So thinking about different activities changing positions, maybe sex on the side, as opposed to a typical missionary position, especially for those who have joint problems or arthritis, using lubricants, um, having sex in the morning instead of in the evening when there isn't as much fatigue and energy levels are better. There are all kinds of tips and ways to work with older adults uh, to keep them sexually active and satisfied. And to that point, besides the different physical possibilities, Dr. Hankins, talk about the communication. You both have mentioned it off and on throughout this interview, but I am I am understanding, and I'm sure everyone who's listening is certainly hearing that as well, how important it is to have communication uh, between the sexual partners. Are there ways that you recommend people talk to each other other than just looking at each other? What do you tell your patients? Right. It is, it's probably one of the most challenging conversations you will have with your partner. For um, Although in my experience, my patients that have the most satisfying sex lives are the ones that uh, can have those open conversations with their partners. And so where it's difficult to do and it can be it can be a very embarrassing conversation and and just hard to bring up in the first place it is so important um, especially as patients age because both as with the changes that come with both men and women as we age as if they tend to start seeing a decrease in the frequency of of sex um, then uh, what the, what we find is that they may want to really find what works best for them. And just like Dr. Singer was saying, sexual positions, what, what is most stimulating for them uh, now, which may be different than what it was um, in, in years past. Um, so 
just like she had mentioned also time of the day, I think that's something excellent to bring up because a lot of men as they age notice that their erections are actually better in the morning. A lot of times we see that because as testosterone levels tend to decrease, our testosterone is diurnal, meaning it's typically higher in the morning and trails off throughout the day. So a lot of men notice that their erections are more firm in the morning than they are in the evening. And that goes in with the uh, exercise tolerance and, and energy levels as well. But uh, those conversations, whereas they are challenging to have and um, can be difficult, can really improve uh, your sexual relationship in uh, overall. And for the and for the better long term. And Cheryl, sometimes I, I think as clinicians, you know, we can kind of broker that conversation. So sometimes people are afraid of offending each other. How am I going to broach the subject? I mean, certainly when I do sexuality counseling, uh, I treat the couple. This is usually a couple's issue, even if the problem might have originated in quotes with one partner. It's a couple's issue. But even in sort of my general medicine practice, you know, I will often ask a patient, um, do you think your partner, would you be willing to have them come in? And do you think they might want to come in? So that some of the explanations I give, you know, some of the level setting, normalizing things, they can both hear. And then you can allow them to be able to talk in sort of a safe place to get started. That will often then translate into continued communication at home. Well, and that's a good segue into my next question, which is for both of you is, after you've heard what each of them are saying within the, the, the relationship here, are there certain medications or treatments that each of you have recommended, um, Dr. Hankins for men, Dr. Singer for women, um, are these effective? I mean, we hear about Viagra all the time, and now I believe there's a new uh, medication for women. Talk about these medications. Um, Dr. Singer, since you were talking, why don't you go ahead and then uh, uh, Dr. Hankins talk about Viagra? Yeah. Because I'm sure people <laughs> want to know, do these sure. work or not? Yeah, I was going to let Dr. Hankins go oh, first okay. only because, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm happy. To work, but he's, um, he's got a little bit of a simpler, you know, um, quiver in his uh, container there to use <laughs> and something that works quite well okay. with women with women because the main problem, if you had to pick one uh, sexual dysfunction, the most common in women as they get older is desire. And that's much more difficult to treat. And I don't know that we have the same kind of magic bullet. Um, there have been studies that have shown that testosterone works in women, but there are no FDA approved androgens or testosterone for use in women. Uh, sometimes we'll use them off-label, but it's really a very select group of patients where this may be appropriate, and it's, I think, beyond the scope of what we have time for today. There are two new medications, as you mentioned or alluded to, that have been approved in women for desire to help with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Both are approved for use in premenopausal women. So not necessarily the group of people that we are um, discussing, although there is data, particularly with flabanserin or Addy, which is actually the little pink pill, that it works in postmenopausal women. Currently, that would be an off-label use. That doesn't mean we don't give medications in that sense, but that's a pill that's taken daily. There's a new injectable medication 
uh, called Vilisi um, that is used on a sort of as needed basis, like 45 minutes before you want to have intercourse or be sexually active. Again, approved in premenopausal women. So the desire piece still remains a little bit of an enigma. For arousal, you know, the use of erotica, lubricants, vibrators, and for women who have what we now call genitourinary syndrome of menopause, that's like a mouthful that I just spit out, right? But genital atrophy, thinning of the mucosa, that's where using local therapies, topical estrogen, topical DHEA, um, sometimes in different circumstances, laser treatments can help with the local vaginal changes. So lots of different moving pieces with women. Um, I'm going to let Dr. Hankins talk about erectile dysfunction and the uh, armamentarium that we have there. It's a little bit easier, I think. Okay, Dr. Hankins. Yeah, I, I'm just so glad Dr. Singer brought that up because unfortunately women get overlooked so frequently when it comes to sexual health as as they age. But And so she covered that excellently. From a men's side of things, we have many different options to help them achieve uh, erections. When it comes to desire, typically that's most affected by their testosterone. So we always check testosterone and make sure uh, that that is optimized from a hormone perspective. And then from an erectile dysfunction perspective, we try to take a stepwise approach to their treatment. So we will usually start with oral therapy, and those are pills, uh, typically Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra. Those are the those are the brand names, but now there are the generics, Sildenafil and Tadalafil, are used most frequently. Um, and in varying concentrations and, and the way patients can take them, uh, are effective in, in over 75% of men with erectile dysfunction. So, so a pill taken at least an hour before they want to have intercourse um, can be very effective by increasing blood flow to the penis. So the pills work great, but they don't work for everybody. And other options, uh, another option uh, which which is not used as frequently, something called Muse, or or it's a small uh, intraurethral suppository, like like a couple millimeters, a very small suppository placed in the urethra, and then medication can diffuse across the urethra and, and help men achieve erections. We also have injections, which I know sounds crazy when you when men think <laughs> about using a small needle to inject their penis with medication. However, I've never had any man tell me that the injection hurt worse than they expected. It's a small hypodermic insulin needle that we use. And we teach these men in the office. And oftentimes I actually, or I always encourage their partners to come as well and learn how to teach and administer the medication. And so that's called intracavernosal injection. And so about 15 minutes or so before sexual activity, uh, they will uh, would teach them how to hold their penis off to the side, teach them exactly where they would inject the medication. And, and a very small volume of medication is injected uh, directly into the penis, which can achieve uh, satisfactory erections in men. And it's huge. I mean, I've uh, hundreds upon hundreds of men uh, that uh, that use these injections. 
And then lastly, you know, you get to a point, there are also vacuum erection devices. So a lot of people make fun of these uh, vacuum pumps, but vacuum pumps work very well for some men that uh, to help them achieve erections by pulling blood flow or sucking blood flow into the penis by negative pressure and then using a small silicone ring placed around the base of the penis to prevent blood flow from exiting. Um, so these are all non-surgical options for erectile dysfunction. And then lastly, if none of the medica medical options uh, work for patients anymore, we have surgical options. And those are typically with what is called the a penile prosthesis. And a penile prosthesis uh, is where we, while the patient's asleep in the operating room, takes about 45 minutes to an hour to do the surgery. And with, um, with a small incision, we're able to place uh, small cylinders within the penis. With the penile anatomy, there are pretty much three cylinders. One's for the urine, uh, so the patient can pee, and then the two erectile cylinders. So the erectile bodies in the penis called the corpora cavernosa, we place uh, uh, cylinders that can in inflate and deflate all on the inside of the body with a small pump in the scrotum. And that actually, uh, post-surgery, these patients have some of the highest satisfaction rates after undergoing penile prosthesis. Um, and it's an excellent option for men. The nice thing is that these prosthetic devices, everything is on the inside of the body. They're filled with fluid. So it's a saline uh, fluid. And whereas by you know, just physics, air is compressible, these are filled with fluid. Fluid's not compressible. So these uh, penile prostheses that we can place are, when they're inflated, uh, they're, they're rock hard. And that's really what men love uh, uh, their erections afterwards, which is nice. Probably should mention that those are permanent, though. In other words, once somebody right. have a prosthesis, then you can't decide. I think I'll get a natural erection now because you've disrupted sort of the anatomy. So they work beautifully, but it's sort of that's why Dr. Hankins mentioned it as kind of the last um, horizon, I guess. That's right. That's or right. Frontier. Yep. Final frontier. <laughs> Okay, well, and we're kind of getting close to the end, and I wanted to quickly find out from either one of you, um, you know, you read advertisements for products that promise a better sex life or dietary or herbal supplements. Do, those, do these really work, or is that a lot of false advertising? Whoever, which of you wants to answer that question would be helpful. I would say, unfortunately, there is a lot of false advertising things. I've seen men that have been taking medications they see at the gas stations. Um, and, a, and a lot of these medications, actually, if you look at the ingredients, will have a very low uh, 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 amount of what of sildenafil, like what's in Viagra, but just a very small amount of it. And so... These can help. Usually the patients that see some improvement in their erections with these are the really young guys that more or less have what we call psychogenic erectile dysfunction, not necessarily a problem with their penis, but more the anxiety side of things we talked about earlier. Um, but realistically, for, for older adults, um, typically men at, in their 50s or older, those medications and over-the-counter supplements uh, don't don't really work well. But there are a lot of companies now, now that sildenafil and, uh, is a generic medication, 
uh, not to, to plug any company, but say something like Roman, so that you can get these medications uh, pretty easily and pretty cheaply. But those are the those are the higher dose medications. So in general, dietary and herbal supplements uh, really don't do much to increase sexual ability or uh, for adults. Nothing is as good for these guys, or men and women both, as diet, exercise, and weight loss. Yep. And just keep in mind, there can be sometimes a little bit of a placebo effect with some of these. If somebody feels that they're being proactive, you know, things can work for other reasons, but there's not a whole lot of data to show clinically that they do. Okay. Well, we are just out of time. Uh, both of you recommended resources to learn about having a healthy uh, sexual relationship. Uh, You've mentioned a few already. Uh, Dr. Singer, anything else that you want to add for our listeners? Uh, again, ASECT, in terms of finding a sex therapist, there are a number of different websites out there, depending on what the issue is. Um, there's a website for orgasm disorders called OMGS. Um, you know, and you could think about all the names and uh, certainly some different books. Um, one that I really like called Sex Matters for Women. Sally Foley is the first author. It's a great book, both for clinicians and for uh, the public in terms of female sexual health. Okay. Dr. Hankins, anything that you no, want to add? Was, that was great. No, that was wonderful. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Andrea Singer and Dr. Ryan Hankins with MedStar Georgetown University Hospital for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, visit our website. It's at agingmattersonline.com. And at this site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, in addition to Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. And Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, which you can learn more about by logging on to inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters with me today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com.